You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Only one of the many laws stumbles in that one point. Remember that message? You're guilty of breaking the entire law. And that seems so unfair until you realize that the law is not a bunch of individual laws. It is a standard. It is a unit. And if you break any part of it, you're no longer righteous before God. He gave it as a unit. If you break this one and keep all of these, you're unrighteous. If you keep all of these and break that one, you're unrighteous. And so you can never, ever get into God's presence with your own righteousness because you know you've stumbled somewhere. You've sinned. Pastor Tom has some hard truths to share with you today, but they're necessary to hear. You can be as good as you want, and it's not going to be good enough. You can give all your money away, be kind and compassionate, help the helpless. All of that is great. But if you miss even once, that's it. One moment of sin goes against the standard God set up. One slip of the tongue, a tiny lie, a word of anger, it's all in that category. But don't lose hope. There's grace, and it's found in Jesus. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 3 as he begins his message, wielding your tongue for good or for ill. Sword fights make for sensational cinema. Who can forget Hector and Achilles in the movie Troy, if you've seen that? Clang after clang before the mighty walls of Troy. Each magnificently wielding their sword. Only one can win in the end. We know who that one was. Or if you like uh, revenge in a movie, which you probably shouldn't, the darker side of a duel, Count of Monte Crisco, where Edmund Dantes had to uh, fight for vengeance, or so he thought, and kill the man who ruined his life. More humorously is uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow, Captain Jack Sparrow, and Captain Barbosa going about stabbing each other, but they couldn't die because they were both under a curse, and uh, so they were just skeletons and having a good time jousting with one another. There are other great ones as well. I would uh, have to mention Zorro, who sent uh, Captain Love, if you've seen that movie, to his uh, plunging death with all of his gold in the mask of Zorro. Maybe my favorite is when the evil Commodus got it in uh, Gladiator, overpowered by, of course, Maximus in the center ring there in the Roman Colosseum. Sword fights are great. They capture our attention. They um, make us riveted on the movie, what's going to happen when it's all done with. The sword, of course, is a mighty instrument of war. It's been used that way down through human history, and uh, many great fights have been done with a sword. It often ends with death for somebody. It's a fight to the death when there's a duel. Through the centuries, the tongue has also been compared to the sword. It has been said to be mightier than the sword and mightier than the pen, the tongue itself and the pen being mightier than the sword. Why has the tongue been compared to a sword when the tongue really is so soft and wet and squishy inside? And the answer, of course, is that the tongue can be very, very what? Sharp, and it can be very cutting, and it can be very hurtful. Proverbs 12 and 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. Proverbs 25 chimes in, Like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. It is inevitable, given the latent destructive power of the tongue, 
that the greatest book in the world, our Bible, that we have sitting on our laps or you're using electronically today, is going to approach this subject of the tongue, and that sooner or later, we who sit here, who sin so often with the tongue, are going to hear a message or two or three about the tongue. That, my dear friends, is what you stepped into today, a message about the tongue. So if you had a bad week with the tongue, then God has you here for a purpose. My guess is we all had a bad week uh, somewhere in the last several concerning our tongues because that's just the way it is. Do you know that God's word is also compared to a sword? In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any, what? Two-edged sword, cuts both ways. And then it says this, to give the, the value of it being a sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, splits our soul open, splits the inside open and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is able through the word of God to break open and show you your conscience, yourself, and what is going on with your motives on the inside. And there is no instrument sharper and has a cleaner cut than the Bible. And I think it's going to do some cutting and it's going to be doing some exposing to our own conscience because that's what the Holy Spirit will use if we are to become godlier with our tongues. I'm going to read verses 2 through 8, but I think you know the tongue is being mentioned from verse 1 all the way through verse 12. We're going to focus on verses 2 through 8. Actually, I'm not sure how far we'll get today. We'll see. James 3, verses 2 through 8. Please follow along as I read it. James writes, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. A lot of people, when they read this passage, think it's a very colorful passage, that's true, but they think James exaggerates a little bit in this passage. It's the Word of God, it's not an exaggeration. Hopefully, when we're done with this series, you'll concur. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21 declares that death and life are in the power of the tongue. That's pretty powerful. We mentioned that last time. This section of Scripture agrees. Death and life really are in the power of the tongue. Your tongue. Who knows whose life whose encouragement, what direction people will have in your future just because of how you train your tongue and what comes off of your tongue. This paragraph here and this section in chapter 3 from verses 1 through 12 is all about the tongue. It's all about how the tongue is going to wield an influence like a sword, either for good or for ill. Teachers, of course, were tackled first there in verse 1. 
Many should not arise in the position of teacher in God's church. We shouldn't have a rush of people trying to teach, particularly not the doctoral instructor or the preacher of God's word. Why not? Because God more carefully scrutinizes the words and the teaching of that person because that has greater weight to a greater number of souls. God has said that he will judge, he will evaluate what they say greater, that word literally there is greater than that of other people. If tongues must be put in check, and they must be, then the tongue of the teacher has to first be put in check. It's a good thing when young men study and work on their lives and study their lives first before they arise to teach in the classroom or elsewhere. It's a good thing. The teacher should have his tongue controlled the most. It really is a frightful ecclesiastical warning reinvesting the reverence of God, even in present teachers like myself, into my heart and into any would-be instructors that God takes eternal things very seriously. He takes His Word and your soul very seriously. They're the two eternal things we have here today. The Word of God and your souls and the Word of God speaking to souls then is very, very important. Unfortunately, as we saw last time, too many rush in unprepared, either in how to handle the text of Scripture or in handling their own lives as well. Rest assured, they will pay for it one day. And though the, the thought of the teacher is not dropped when we come to verse 2, you'll notice the connecting word there, for, the thrust of the rest of the passage is not primarily for the teacher. I don't want you to check out and think that this is a teacher now, today, preaching and teaching only to teachers. No. In one sense, everyone uses their tongue for teaching, and that's good. There's a, there's a sense in which we all encourage and we all share and we all sing, and those things should be done. But uh, this is for everybody. This is for you. If you're a believer, this is a passage for you. It's designed for you. It's very practical. It's very convicting. And we just trust the Spirit of God is going to speak to all of us today about this. Your tongue, and I want to emphasize that. Yes, your tongue has a great influence. How will you use it? How will you use your tongue? And what, what will happen when you use your tongue? Who will it impact? You may never even know. You may not even be able to tell from the face of the person that you spoke to how your tongue impacted their life. It's a heavy thing to think about. You know, sometimes we say, you know, talk is cheap, but, but it's not really. If it's not backed up with actions, that's why talk is cheap. But talk is actually can be very weighty in people's lives. So I want to give you, starting today, and we won't finish, you know me, four indications. This is your outline if you want to write it down. Four indications of the power of the tongue. Four indications of the power of the tongue. The first one is in verse 2, and it is this. Only a perfect man can perfectly bridle his tongue. Only a perfect man bridles his tongue. That's verse 2. Look at it again, would you? He writes, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. We'll talk about that word perfect. Able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, this tells us the tongue is so potent that if we could just control our own tongue, if that was the goal in life, and we could just control our own tongue, we couldn't control anything else in the whole world, if we could just control our own tongue, that would be a great accomplishment. That would be a wonderful thing. It would prove we're really, really mature people. It would prove we're able to control all the rest of our body as well. Wow, that's quite a statement. If I can control my tongue, I can control anything else about myself. That's quite a statement. Is he exaggerating? I don't think so. And verse 2 points backwards, as we said, to verse 1. There's that connective word for. 
So the teachers are involved in this as well. Now, I would say in a backwards kind of way, please understand what I'm saying. In a backwards kind of way, verse 2 is reassuring, okay? For it tells us that we're all in the same boat with our tongues. We all have trouble with that little guy inside there, okay? We all are moral stumblers, that is, sinners, when it comes to our tongues. A lot of times people don't think about sinning with their tongues. Like, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal anything. I didn't commit adultery. Yeah, how's your tongue done recently? It's a little sinner in there, isn't it? It's a little lousy sinner in there. So we're all in the same boat, and that's somewhat reassuring. We all stumble. That word stumble, patayo, it's in the present tense, indicates that it periodically happens to us. We don't just stumble and then learn. Unfortunately, we stumble and stumble and stumble some more. Stumbling, I think, is a helpful picture when you think about sin. Often to grasp unseen spiritual realities, Scripture gives us concrete realities. And so sometimes sin is, is like you intend to go this, but you miss the mark, and so you stray. That's where harmatia and harmardiology comes from. Here's just the idea is you're going along and you're walking and you think you're making good progress, and then you stumble, and it's not what you intended to do. And it's not pleasant, but it happens, right? So we stumble with our tongues. You know, it's a beautiful autumn day, and you might have, maybe this weekend you end, maybe soon you're going to go for a nice little stroll in the forest. All the leaves are changing, a bright sunny day, sky is blue, and you're out there walking along, looking at everything, and there's a root that seems to have just jumped up out of the pathway and grabbed your foot, you know, and it stumbles, and it's not pleasant, it's not fun, but it does happen. People don't plan on it, but it, it still hurts when it happens. I'm going to add in Proverbs 4.19 here. It says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. We do know over what we stumble. Like when I do wrong and I look back on it, I know. My conscience has been informed. The wicked often don't know. They're going along and they're committing sins of ignorance. They're ignorant about it. They're in the dark, but we're in the light. We have a light shining on us, and I know when I do wrong, I may fight it for a while and justify it for a while, but once the anger settles down and I look backwards or I look at my wife's face, either one, I know I was wrong, wrong, and the confession comes out, right? Well, we know. By the way, this word stumble was already used by James back in chapter 2, verse 10. You want to glance back there a minute? Whoever keeps the entire law of Moses, remember that, the entire law of God, and yet stumbles in one point, only one of the many laws stumbles in that one point, remember that message? You're guilty of breaking the entire law, and that seems so unfair until you realize that the law is not a bunch of individual laws. It is a standard. It is a unit, and if you break any part of it, you're no longer righteous before God. He gave it as a unit. If you break this one and keep all of these, you're unrighteous. If you keep all of these and break that one, you're unrighteous, and so you can never, ever get into God's presence with your own righteousness because you know you've stumbled somewhere. You've sinned. You break any part of that, and you have failed. You're no longer a perfect person. Stumbling in some places in Scripture is not the same thing as falling into utter ruin. In Romans 11, 11, Paul asks the question, has Israel, the nation of Israel, through their unbelief, have they stumbled so as to fall? And he says, no, God's not done with the nation of Israel. They that God is going to uphold them and keep them and fulfill the promises that he has to them. They did stumble, but they didn't stumble so as to completely fall. God has a plan for that nation. 
God will hold our hands also. If we stumble, God says he will not let us go. And that's good because if I stumble, I may wonder if it's based upon my endurance, if it's based on my perseverance and faith, maybe that will run out one day and then what will happen to me? And so it's good when we're talking about stumbling where we remember the eternal security of God that he has our hand. And I love the promise that's given in the benediction to the little letter of Jude there, second to the last in the Bible, where he says, God is able to make you stand and to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in his glorious presence. So God will do that. As you stumble, he'll hold on to you. Now, since we all stumble in sin, nobody gets a pass here, okay? And no, no one really gets to lecture anybody else. This is not me lecturing you. This is God's word lecturing all of us here, okay? None of us is a self-appointed paragon of virtue. We all have problems with the tongue. We all stumble. There is one exception, of course, who had a perfect mouth. Perfect mouth. We're going to point that out because the way you can really tell if someone's got a perfect mouth is put them through the most horrendous experience and insult them the most and whip them and beat them and find out what comes out of their mouth. Then you find out what's really inside. And I tell you, what's inside of me is not the same thing as what's inside of Christ because his mouth really was perfect. We're going to talk about that. But just before we get into talking about the tongue, I want you to notice that, that James here, in his own way, is affirming another doctrine of Scripture that's very important, and it is the doctrine of universal sin. Now, he's only talking about universal sin with the the tongue here in particular, but there's a sense in which it's broadened out because he says we all stumble in many ways. So by talking about sin as stumbling and saying we all do it, he's just basically said the same thing that Romans 3.23 says that all have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Universal sin. What does universal sin mean? It doesn't mean that sin came from out there in the universe. It means that all of us are sinners here. We all stumble in many ways. James included, by the way. James included because he changed and he used the first person plural there, right? And let's remember who James is. This is James surnamed the just, one of the greatest men ever in church history. James, the Lord's brother, grew up in the same household with Jesus Christ. James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the senior pastor there. James, the presider over the first ecumenical council where all the churches came together, the Jerusalem council. James, whose reputation for godliness and for long hours of prayer on his knees was unsurpassed. Yet James says, we all stumble in many ways. He's a sinner too, he knew it. The Lutheran commentator Lenski writes this, this is James's great confession of sin in this letter. Because sin really is a universal reality. It infects everybody. It infects human nature, down to every boy and girl. Some of you parents with little kids are saying, amen, amen. Modern thought generally fancies human beings as making an evolutionary progress and getting better and better. Rather than viewing themselves in categories of morally evil or morally good, they just kind of see us making progress in our capabilities and usually having good intent, or at least working towards good. Or those that are religious, usually the religions of the world think of mankind as generally speaking good, in good standing with God. Most people, when they're on the deathbed or getting near death, they don't think about, well, I'm about to go to the judgment of God. Some do, but many think, oh, it's going to be a better place to go to, and it probably won't be for them, for many people, because mankind is rejected by God. We're sinners. Au contraire, says the Word of God, 
Scripture makes it abundantly clear we never evolved from lower forms of life. We were not endowed a lofty present status. We have plunged instead into corruption, into darkness, into decay. And we face a future time of, of doom. The Bible speaks of love, but speaks the truth in love. Man is not on his way up. Man is on his way down. And he needs to be delivered from his stumbling, from his evil. Yes, we were specially and supernaturally created by God in his image. Yes, human life is, is sacred. Yes, we were placed on the planet to rule over it. But mankind rebelled against the word of God. The word and the command was given and we rebelled. And since that time, life was taken from us. And that rebellion corrupted our nature. All of human history really demonstrates the universal aspect of sin, the universal reality of sin. We look today and what do we see? We see wars and we see rumors of wars. We hear of oppression, destruction, disease, hatred. And also, we always hear of this, universal death. We talked about the guy who protected uh, President Reagan from the assassination attempt. No matter what noble things that people did in times past in, in wars or great things, they all eventually die. Death itself is the testimony that God has rejected our lives. He doesn't keep us alive. When he looks at the value of our life, he doesn't see value in this life. He lets it die. Otherwise, he'd redeem it. In Christ, he has, but by ourselves, he lets it die. And so only in Christ will we have a resurrection. By the way, Jesus, it says of him that death could not hold him down. Why not? Because he never sinned. He died for our sins, not his own. And so it was impossible for death to hold him down. He earned his resurrection. He deserved his resurrection. Ours will be of grace in him. The evidence of sin is everywhere. It's not just Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10-12 says there are none who are good. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? There are none who are good, not even one, it goes on to say. It even says together they've become useless. We're in such an age that tries to elevate man and say we need to think highly of ourselves and we're not junk and have a high esteem of yourself and love yourself. And there's the Bible saying together you have become useless to me. Now who preaches that anymore? Every newspaper, every news website testifies daily to the existence of sin, murders, rapes, mass shootings, brutality, terrorism, falsehoods, stealing, carousing, neglect, slander, divorce, assaults, injustice, perversion, and you can go on and on and on. Isn't it amazing when evil is done in society, the great minds get together on CNN or Fox or wherever it is, and they're like, it's mental illness. We have a problem with mental illness. I think their brains are working fine. You know, thoughts can't be sick, but they can be evil. Really, mental illness is a misnomer. The brain can be injured, and your soul can be sick, but thoughts don't get sick. Many in the world just don't understand evil. They don't know how to categorize it. It's not politically correct to even say that. Evil is reserved for the Hitlers and the worst kind of people instead of realizing we're all evil of nature. It infects the mind. It infects the soul. It infects how we think. It affects our relationships. It affects our approach to God. The first thing that Adam did after he sinned was to run and hide from who? From God. It was instantly part of his nature. If you want to know why people don't seek for God, look at Adam. When he sinned, he ran. God had to chase him. That's the true picture of salvation. 
No improvement of environment has ever come close to creating a utopian society. Socialism always fails. It's corrupted by proud, lazy class of people who began to think over time, I deserve the benefits that were given to me. Capitalism often goes awry. Why? Because it gets corrupted by greed and power. The real problem is not the system of economics. The real problem is man's nature. Man's nature can take any good political or social environment and ruin it. Any system and destroy it. The word evil isn't used much today. It's been reserved for those people in history who do the worst acts, the greatest sins. But today, Pastor Tom reminded you that everyone is evil, according to the Bible. If you're not saved by grace, your sin is considered evil. You can be the kindest, most generous person, but one mistake, one slip of the tongue, that's enough to tip the scales in the wrong direction. We need Jesus. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leak, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will continue his discussion on the problems your tongue can create. It seems easy enough to control, but what happens when tempers flare? Can you keep the words you say under control every moment? Pastor Tom will remind you that others are watching and listening. What you say has an effect on someone else. So it would be wise to learn how to keep your tongue in check. There's much more to learn from the book of James. So we hope you'll tune in again next time. If you'd like to listen again to today's teaching or share it with friends and family, you'll find it online at hopebible.org. Thanks for joining us on Discover Hope.